Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're doing well. So today's podcast is a very important topic that you already know because you clicked on this. So we're going to be talking with Dr. Greer Raggio about weight, trauma, eating behavior, eating disorders, and really what you need to know. So it's an important topic. And I, as I always do in these conversations, I learn something. We're going to cover a lot of different things. We're going to cover what are some of the different definitions of trauma and also how some of the ways we've defined trauma as a field have changed over time. And I think you'll find that part interesting. I know I did. We're going to talk about big T trauma, little t trauma. What's the difference? What are some examples? We're going to talk about, you know, answer the question, does my experience with the medical system or experience with microaggressions count as trauma and you'll see that um, it depends but it certainly can and uh, the most important thing is how you as an individual experience it. We'll talk about how you can know if you have unresolved trauma, what are some of the signs or symptoms, how trauma relates to eating and weight concerns or eating disorders. And we'll also talk about some of the signs that you may want to seek a different therapist if you're not getting the results you want in your therapy or that you, how to seek out someone if that's something that you want to pursue at this time. So settle in, it's a really important one and I'm so glad that you're here. Also, if you are a therapist, dietitian, or helping professional and you work with people with disordered eating or who are struggling with eating and weight concerns, uh, I have a free tool for you that I had way too much fun developing. So I, I developed this after a workshop we did recently. And um, to be honest, I don't exactly know how many people listen to this podcast that are professionals versus individuals. So uh, I'll be excited to, if you are a professional listening to this podcast, feel free to shoot me an email or say hello. Um, but if you're someone who you've been working with a client and maybe a client says something like, I really like intuitive eating, but I ultimately really want to lose weight, or in your opinion, they just, they have a hard time not focusing on weight loss and you notice it kind of gets in the way of them 
doing what they want to do or getting in touch with their body. And as a professional, you're not necessarily sure the best ways to guide them because maybe you understand why they want to lose weight, but you're also, um, you want the best for them and you want them to build up their own self-trust, but you're not sure what to do. You might empathize with them. You might tell them the science about dieting and weight loss and um, trying to convince them to not to diet. But ultimately, you might feel a little bit stuck. So how can you help them explore what's right for them without imposing your own agenda, which tends to backfire? So I created this free step-by-step guide to walk you through my number one favorite exercise. This is based on internal family systems theory, my favorite thing. Um, And it helps you help your clients navigate this nuanced dynamic with the different parts of them that still want to lose weight. So as a professional, it's my favorite way to help clients build trust while also taking the pressure off of me as a professional to know the exact right advice to give or say. So it's a really great tool. It's a win-win. You can grab it for free and exactly how to do it at drhondorp.com forward slash parts, P-A-R-T-S. So grab it for free today at drhondorp.com forward slash parts. And if you use it with a client, make sure you email me and let me know. All right. And just as a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. If you need a professional to guide you, please, please get one. All right, everyone, let's dive in. All right. So welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. We're here today with Dr. Greer Fragio. And Greer and I actually know each other from graduate school at Drexel, and we're kind of randomly reconnected. And we decided together, also based on Greer's specialty, to talk about a really important topic today. So if you came on and you know decided to click the button for this episode, um, you know we're talking about weight and trauma. So we're talking about, I think there's more and more people talking about trauma and wanting to understand it. I think it's essential. And so really excited to be here with you today. Greer, so welcome. Thank you, Sean. So first, as always, we want to start with knowing a little bit more about you, your story, whatever you want to share and how you came to doing this work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of how I came into this work, um, sort of a combination of chance, luck, and learning through clinical experience with patients, um, going into grad school, I'd intended to focus on health psychology. Um, so working with people on health behaviors and adjusting to medical diagnoses. And actually my original intention was to work in psycho-oncology, um, and, and help kind of cancer patients navigate diagnosis and treatment. And so, as you know, Sean, and many graduate programs in psychology, you're paired with a, a lab um, where you do clinical work and, and research. Um, and so that's what sort of initially happened when I went into graduate school um, and started working with, with that kind of cancer population and others. Well, fast forward a year or so, and for a number of reasons that didn't work out, and I was kind of searching for another research group and landed with... Dr. Megan Butrin, who remains, as far as I know, at at Drexel, and she specialized and still does in obesity management and binge eating. Um, And I started with that work and 
kind of have never looked back. I really didn't know a lot about it going in. Um, but the more I learned, I really became fascinated and and humbled by the complexity of eating behaviors, um, the social and emotional associations we have with food. Um, and then in terms of where trauma comes in, that kind of was a little bit later and in, in the more through experience part. I did an internship and then um, a postdoc rotation at the VA, two different VAs, um, and worked in PTSD clinic and really kind of picked up some of that trauma, um, trauma focused skill work there. Um, and then in the past five years or so working a lot with, um, people struggling with emotional and, and binge eating, um, trauma comes up a lot. So, you know, as you know, especially among, among binge eaters or those with binge eating disorder, you know, 90 plus percent might have a lifetime history of trauma. And so it's sort of something that, you kind of can't ignore. Um, and it's sort of baked into the process. Um, and something that, you know, I, I find a lot of fulfillment in helping people with. Yeah. I think I appreciate you sharing that. And yeah, I'm so excited to dive into this topic because it is so important. I don't think I knew that 90% statistic actually. I think that's actually even to me doing this work, although maybe we're going to talk about definitions of trauma in a minute here, but um, I think that for most people, they might be like, whoa, really? Um, and, and really take them pause. And so, yeah, most of us need to be listening. Whether or not you have that diagnosis, it's a lot more common than what we might think of as trauma as maybe a smaller portion of people have that experience. It's really more of a larger experience. So, um, so yeah, we're going to do our best to give this really important topic the reverence and importance it deserves. So we're going to back up, go over some clinical definitions. So how is trauma defined officially by us psychologists? Yeah. Um, well, there are a number of definitions depending on who you ask. Um, the classic kind of traditional one um, is, is very concrete, objective, and event-focused. And so it's, um, and actually this is in our statistical manual, as trauma is an actual or threatened um, death, uh, serious in injury, um, or sexual violence. So an event marked by, by those things. Um, so very much about what happened um, to uh, cause a reaction in the person and not about the person's experience afterward. Mm -hmm. um, the more kind of modern and inclusive definition is much more subjective and feelings focused um, and broader. So it's, it's, and this is from the APA website, um, any disturbing experience that results in disruptive feelings intense enough to have a long lasting negative effect. There's a huge dot, dot, dot. There's a lot more to it um, and lots mm -hmm. of examples. But again, it's more about how that person reacts to the event or series of events versus what actually happened. Um, and it doesn't have to be life-threatening. Um, I think personally, I prefer integrated and more integrated and sort of simpler definition. So, and essentially an event you experience as harmful or life-threatening that has a lasting impact. Um, and that's really how I view it and talk to patients about it, but, but yeah, there are a variety of definitions. Yeah. And even as you're going through those, I'm thinking, yeah, the first definition it's, that's probably what 
myself included probably years ago you're like well I don't that doesn't fit for me and that doesn't fit for that large of a portion of populations right we think of it as like war veterans or people that have had you know significant sexual assaults which is very important to look at but these newer definitions these more wider inclusive definitions really help us to see like it really could be lots of different things it could be you know, even just, I, I shouldn't say just because it's a big deal, but like misattunement with a parent-child relationship, right? Where the child's experiencing something and the parent isn't able to show up in the way that ch that child needs. I'm a parent of young kids, so I think about this all the time. That happens a lot, right? From very well-intentioned parents and that could be perceived as very harmful and could develop a lot of, you know, a trauma response in the body. So, um, so this goes along with our next question, which is what do people or therapists mean when we say big T trauma, little T trauma, and let's just maybe talk through some examples of that. So people know what we're talking about. Yeah, sure. Yeah. This language I, I feel like has really come into vogue lately in recent years for whatever reason. And, and you're right. I really do think of it um, as the big T and little T is very much aligning with the definitions that we talked about. So the big T is you know, people automatically think about PTSD and kind of the classic trauma events, combat trauma, um, rape, um, physical assault, um, that kind of thing. Um, so it's, it follows that kind of traditional, more concrete definition, things that are sort of would never be challenged by someone as being a trauma, um, what most people think about. Um, and it often, often is somewhat life-threatening and very physical in nature. Um, small T in contrast, very much aligns with that more modern kind of broader, more inclusive definition. Um, so not the, the event or series of events oftentimes, um, is not necessarily life-threatening. It could be, maybe not. Um, they tend to be, uh, maybe not quite as broadly acknowledged, um, by the general public as trauma. Um, mm -hmm. again, because maybe not, not necessarily life-threatening or even violent, but they're still disturbing on, on a personal level and really affect day-to-day -day life for, you know, potentially years. So I think situations that fit into this category are, are things like bullying, um, emotional abuse or the misattunement you were talking about, but sort of feeling generally unloved as a child, even over the course of years or within a romantic relationship, even things like chronic financial concerns or debt and the stress that that can bring up for people, um, coping with a chronic illness. Um, so you can think of a lot of different things that would fit in that category. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate all those examples. And the, the main other one that's coming up as you're talking to me is, um, well, you did mention coping with a chronic illness, but the experience of medical-based trauma or interacting with the medical system, those could fall into big T trauma. Like you had some major surgery that you didn't expect. Like that could be, people could probably, I think, agree that that could go into the big T, but then I think a lot of like weight bias would often fall into maybe a little T trauma there where you're experiencing perceived like, and I don't know if that would fall into trauma from 
the official definitions, but I think it, it can absolutely like, well, I guess in the definition of like, it was harmful, right? Like someone goes in to their doctor wanting help with something and they're just told, well, this is all about your weight. And um, so that could fall into that category too. Seems like absolutely. Um, and even, you know, it, things like uh, uh, microaggressions, right? Um, mm -hmm. Based on weight, uh, race, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, they don't even need to be very specific events, but sort of, you know, a series of interactions with people where you come away feeling not right or rejected in some way. Yes. Yeah. I'm just thinking too of someone I know recently who's had a lot of negative interactions with their getting their child's special needs met in different scenarios. And so now they notice like whenever they interact with people, even if they've never, the, these professionals haven't given them a reason yet to feel nervous that they're not going to be able to meet their child's needs. They've had so many people that are like, we can't help you. We can't help you like that can anyway, that, that example just popped into my head too. So um, yeah. So how can someone know if they have unresolved trauma? What are some of the signs? Two main ones come to mind. Um, the first is what we call intrusive thoughts. Um, so these essentially are memories of the trauma. Um, so if, it, if it's a, a physical attack, maybe memories about, about that explicitly, um, or uh, what happened in, uh, in that person's day leading up to the attack. Um, so, and they can be explicit memories, they can be just sort of thoughts, um, even uh, other involving other senses like smells, it's a little less common, but it could be images, thoughts, sounds, anything like that. But they're, they're uninvited, certainly um, unwanted, and they're, they can be sticky, meaning um, they can be hard to get rid of um, or escape from. Um, and going along with that, so that's the first piece. And then uh, widespread avoidance is another really big one. So, you know, certainly avoidance of those thoughts, real effort to push them away and understandably not want to re-experience that trauma. So, you know, that's what we call kind of cognitive avoidance, but also more uh, kind of outright avoidance of uh, in everyday life of maybe certain people, um, places, um, types of events. I worked with someone once who had been in, in the military and in this awful explosion and really had a, an enormous fear of fire and was not able to even be in a restaurant where there were candles lit. Um, you know, someone who is attacked in a parking lot may never be able or may have a hard time, you know, and maybe through treatment be able to do, but the parking, you know, in, in an open space like that. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of that, that avoidance piece that can certainly be addressed, but it's a good signal that there's something lingering there. <clears throat> and then, you know, the other ways that it just shows up in daily life, which it can be quite visible to others and, or subtle, it depends on the person. So, you know, some degree of irritability is quite common. Um, social withdrawal, especially if the trauma brings brings on some depression, um, an impact on sleep, um, especially in the context of nightmares, right? It can be really scary, the thought of going to sleep and reliving that event. 
um, difficulty concentrating. And then hypervigilance is a big one too. So this sort of experience of constantly being on high alert, feeling jumpy, and the world just feels more dangerous uh, than it than it had before, which can be really sad to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And the only, uh, I mean, you did a very comprehensive overview, but it made me think of how sometimes it, it can lead to these beliefs of, of just like expecting things to go poorly and beliefs that like, even um, like just these deep beliefs that like, I'm not, you, you talked about like being like threatening, and yeah, this belief like my life is not going to last that long or sort of these ingrained beliefs that people don't necessarily want to share, but then they sort of just hold on to those. And so that can be a sign too. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And just that, you know, the sense of, of trust a person has, um, you know, with other people or even with themselves, right? Not trusting themselves to be able to prevent bad things from happening um, or protect themselves in some way. Yeah, for sure. Um, And how, so how, let's talk about how it relates to eating behavior and weight. So how, I know this is kind of a big question, but how does trauma relate to weight and eating behavior or disordered eating, eating disorders? Yeah, lots of connections there. Um, So like I said before, trauma is really, really common, especially in binge eating disorder. Um, But in eating and weight, I mean, there's, there's, there are a lot of different links. Um, First of all, and I really like to establish this and normalize it. I do this over and over again, when I start working with patients that eating is a very common and really nearly a ubiquitous way to manage emotion for people. Um, It's also a way that we often connect with other people, explore other cultures. Um, It's one that, uh, you know, helps us, can help us to manage difficult emotion, but also create fun emotions, right? In that, in that regard. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very much normalized, right? So if you think about you know, pizza Fridays as a kid or as an adult to mark, you know, the start of a weekend or um, ice cream as a reward for an A on a paper or winning a softball game, right? I mean, these are very common kind of benign examples, but they show sort of the normalization of, you know, how we use food as reward or even withhold it as punishment in other cases. Um, so food serves a a much broader purpose than just meeting physical needs. And that's just how it is, at least in our society. Um, and I really emphasize this with people because there can be so much shame around disordered eating, um, especially when it results in, in, in weight gain. Um, and I really like them to know that, you know, this is something that everyone pretty much deals with in, in some way it's more problematic for some than others. So kind of establishing that eating to cope is normal. And it's also sometimes the best or only way to manage emotion, depending on the person and situation. And this is especially true during childhood, right? So, you know, during childhood, we typically have a very limited control over our environment and over our time. We have 
we're sort of in the midst of brain development um, and a lot less experience with more sophisticated modes of coping, right? I mean, I've never met a kid who's been to a series of meditation retreats and, you know, uh, I'm sending my kids there now. I mean, wouldn't that be great? But um, there's just, there's limited range of ways to deal with distress. And especially if there's less support for that kid from the parents or, or others, um, you know, they, they do with what they have, they reach for what they have access to and food, um, in our society for, for most is pretty accessible. Um, there's also a pretty immediate response in the brain in terms of eliciting pleasure, um, and even calm when we eat and eat certain foods, um, and eating, especially if it, if it gets to the point of sort of the level of a clinical binge, it can really be a distraction and even like a break from worries. Um, And so, you know, if you kind of take all of that into account and you acknowledge that we learn how to do a lot of things when we're kids, right. Kind of navigate life and help ourselves fast forward years in it ahead. And that behavior tends to stick that sort of association between I feel upset and food. Um, and so, you know, it, it often does start sort of early on. Um, it is more ideal certainly to have a number of ways to help yourself during times of stress or acute distress. Um, but you know, some, for whatever reason, you know, do tend to rely more heavily on food. And so now taking all of that, if you imagine adding a traumatic event or like a sexual or physical assault or a series of them, you know, the person in that sort of position is left with more frequent, more intense distress um, and a real sense of urgency to make those feelings go away. Right. And so, again, we reach for what's accessible, what's fast and and food, you know, again, it, it comes up time and time again as, as an answer. Mm-hmm. And then with the weight piece, you know, over time, trauma or not trauma, right. Utilizing food to cope, um, depending on the person's physiology, genetics, how much they rely on food to cope versus other strategies. Um, weight just often does start to, to go up. Um, I think another, I guess the final thing I'll say here, another dimension, and this is especially for those with a history of sexual abuse or assault, is that weight gain can generally unconsciously, um, but be a way to self-protect, meaning literally building a barrier between the self and the outside world and and potential threats, be that, you know, uh, another attacker um, and so, or, or something else. And so it's, it also can be sort of like a literal distancing, um, from potential, uh, danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It serves so many different needs really. Like you said so many, so well, and, and it often is the only option. So yeah, tons of, tons of parallels there and tons of things to, um, I think most of us can relate to some some degree of that, right? And so, yeah, I think for the people listening, just like, of course, uh, and and how 
how adaptive, right? How resilient of either little kid version of, of you or whoever we're thinking of or adult version to be like, yeah, makes sense. So. Yeah. 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 And, and again, it's so important. I find with, with people to, to normalize that and to emphasize that, you know, yes, there's a cost to it. So let's explore other ways of coping, but this is your, this is your attempt to help yourself um, and to protect mm-hmm. yourself. And of, of mm-hmm. course, you're going to try that, um, to try to do that. That's, that's, that's what we're, we're built to do. Um, yeah. And so just helping them to view it uh, in a, in a more self-compassionate way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hard to do, especially when the underlying cause of trauma also causes people to be less compassionate, right? Cause they didn't necessarily feel valid in whatever ex- emotional experience they had. And um, so, yeah, but it is, it's pivotal of being able to understand the way we've learned to function with compassion and like, Oh, it makes sense. That's the first step towards, I think healing is just understanding how we've developed and how our systems work. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So how can someone know if they're seeing kind of the right therapist for the level of healing that they're, they're seeking? Yeah, I think, um, looking for someone who specializes in weight and eating, you know, if that, if that is one of the primary concerns, mm-hmm. um, and also someone who ideally who utilizes something, you know, uh, trauma focused treatments or a trauma informed approach or some words kind of in, in, in aligned with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, even if that's not the case that given that trauma is so common among those with, with eating disorders, again, and binge eating that if you're seeing like a binge eating specialist, for example, they almost certainly have pretty extensive experience with trauma as well just kind of the nature of the work, um, that it's a good bet that they'll be able to help with that as well. But, you know, working, looking for those words, trauma focused or trauma informed, um, you know, even specific techniques like prolonged exposure, for example, is one, um, approach to, to trauma or PTSD. Um, in the end it's specialty is important and certainly their, their experience Mm with, with what you're trying to the address is hugely important, but also of course fits just the person's comfort level with that clinician. Yeah. Yeah. That relationship and that rapport can often go beyond anything, but I think it's also, yeah, for people to know there's just many different types of therapy trainings, therapy backgrounds, there's many different types of personalities. So if you've had an experience where you're like, Oh, I haven't quite felt as good as I want to feel, I think just knowing that it could be, yeah, there could be a deeper level and maybe you weren't quite ready to go there previously, or maybe that therapist wasn't ready to go there with you, who knows, but yeah, wanting people to know that there is, I think a lot of times, this is just my opinion, but in the, maybe, maybe the medical model, it's like, yeah, treat the symptom, maybe you get binge eating to a place where it's better, but you're like, I still don't feel necessarily, um, I feel still feel very, um, prone to going back into old habits. Like I feel, still feel like I have to sort of fight tooth and nail. That could be also, I think a level of like, maybe there's more to, um, to help you get to a place where you feel more self-trust, more, um, more confidence in, in your ability to kind of 
cope with whatever arises. So I don't know, just some, some thoughts to throw in there too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I, I, I guess I, the one other thing I want to say is I sort of am not emphasizing the specific clinical approach, right? Like cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy. Um, I mean, there are certain, I'm more of a cognitive behavioral, um, you know, kind of oriented clinician, um, but there are a number of different really effective ways to approach both um, disordered or unhealthy eating and trauma. Um, But, you know, it really is about that fit and just the Mm -hmm. fact that that the clinician has some specialized experience in that area that I think matters more almost. Yeah, no, I'm glad you're saying that too, because I'm thinking like, I know when this episode will come out and the episodes around it, I'm very into like internal family systems uh, model lately. And I think it's really cool. And I think personally and professionally, it's just been a really positive thing for me. And ultimately I agree with what you said. Like, I don't think there's one model that's the right fit for everyone. I think it's the relationship with your therapist that matters most. I think we know that really clearly. Um, and so, yeah, that I think that's worth always saying because I can get caught up just, I think as many professionals, but also people like, cause I mean, you only have so much to go off of when you're seeking a therapist, right? You're like, what's, what's their training? Like, but also I think, how do I feel in the room with them? Right. Do I feel like they get me? And so those are all important things to, to consider. Do I feel like I'm getting, do I feel like I'm progressing in the way that I want to? And and sometimes, frankly, we don't know until we experience, I know I've talked about that more recently on the podcast of, I have found a therapist more recently. That's just like, Oh, I'm really getting something really different out of this. And sometimes you don't know that. So yeah. Until you experience it you're like oh well what do you know not that that, uh wasn't valuable but yeah right and is there anything else I mean I guess we what's the kind of the main thing you wish people knew about healing from a disordered relationship with food as it relates to this topic of trauma anything else that you want to add that we didn't yet cover um I, I think we probably have covered it either explicitly or implicitly, but I think in brief, you're not alone. Um, you know, again, using food to cope to some extent is completely normal, um, especially in the context of trauma. Um, and there are, you know, ways, ways to address it, but really reminding, reminding that person, or I ask them to remind themselves that it is not that they're uniquely flawed or something's wrong with them, um, that this is something that comes up. Otherwise I would not have a job. Um, Mm -hmm. so that, and as frustrating as this can be, you know, just also being patient, um, you know, for many people, this work is ongoing and as much as we would like there to be, there's no cure, so to speak, or typical path to healing from, from disordered eating, whether there's that context of trauma or not, but I think especially with, with trauma, you know, it's eating is a, again, a human behavior that's quite complex and sticky. Um, and healing from trauma is also something that just takes a lot of time and, and work. It's very possible. Um, but you know, in the end, 
urges to eat in a certain way and certainly memories of the trauma, it's part of you. It's not something that just disappears. Um, and so can it be managed better? And can the thoughts and urges become less intense? Absolutely. Um, but it, it does take time. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the final thing that sort of aligns with that is that just expect setbacks and really try your best to respond with self-compassion. Um, you know, even when there's a, a, you know, total relapse, whatever that means, right. Into disordered eating, um, it doesn't mean that your efforts in treatment have failed. Um, it's just, it's important to respond, you know, to a relapse or an uptick in disordered eating, whatever it is for you with, with a sense of kind of a with kindness, with some compassion, um, resisting that shame spiral that just makes us want to give up, um, getting support from loved ones and professionals, um, if, if needed, if that's part of that person's universe, learning what they can from the situation, if there is something to be learned and, and moving forward, but just sort of understanding that, you know, it's not an if, it's more of a when setback will happen and just normalizing that um, and doing what you can to sort of respond in, in the softest way possible. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice and hard to do. <laughs> it's like <laughs> wonderful advice. And yeah, like as someone who's been down some shame spirals in my day um, and, and it is possible and I feel much less prone to doing that or I catch it much quickly, more quickly. And sometimes it is just that opportunity to be like, okay, we got to unlock this next level of healing. And there's something still to figure out is the way that's at least how I think about it. And it helps me to be more compassionate with myself and having supports of people that'll remind you of that because sometimes it's hard to remind ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the, the more, uh, and the more it actually comes up, right. And and we kind of get through and recover from a setback, whatever that means for that person. Right. I mean, each time there's some resilience being built and that is cumulative. And so, mm-hmm. you know, one perspective could be, oh gosh, I, I, I'm set back again. Why is this, why does this continue happening? Another perspective is, okay, you know, this happened a few months ago or last year and I got back on track you know, whatever that, that means for, for that person. So I can do it again this time. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's, yeah, it does. And I think that's how it does tend to work for, it may not always feel like it in the moment, (laughs) in the exact moment of perceived setback or failure, but ultimately I, I do think that that occurs where it's like, yeah, um, I'm much more personally, I'm much more comfortable with failure than I ever used to be. And it's like, or messing up and you're like it still hurts right it's still like ah that's disappointing right but um but yeah and I'm not really talking about the eating realm at this point in my life but um but certainly that was the case too so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. all right so we're gonna move on to our motivation questions at the end here so first our intrinsic motivation question so what's one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for so you do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior itself you enjoy it find it challenging and or satisfying in its own right um exercise in some form is definitely that for me um something that was 
always modeled by family, especially parents as something you just do, but, you know, not just for health and, you know, some kind of body um, toning, for example, et cetera, but, you know, more for well-being, um, stress management and something that you do for you um, oftentimes alone, right. Kind of carving out that time. And so seeing them create boundaries around that, that were sort of non-negotiable and, and, you know, my just kind of following suit. Um, I find that it is my time, however I use it, even if I'm just sort of sitting on my bike and, you know, staring at the screen and very slowly moving my legs for 10 minutes that it's, it's something that I'm doing for me um, yeah. in that moment. It's good. Nice. Yeah. So it's sort of set up where it could be associated with self-care. It sounds like me time, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Versus like a should. Nice. Sounds good. And um, the next question is from a should to a choose to. So our integrated motivation question. So this is an example of a behavior that was always a should maybe you still struggled to do, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you value it and, or it's part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. Yeah. So this one, I have a pretty recent example, which I hesitated actually to, to bring this up because I talk to patients and encourage them to do this all the time. And that's meditation and relaxation. And <laughs> I just resisted it for so long, even though I know it's helpful, even though I've seen the data, um, (laughs) for whatever reason, there was just always an internal eye roll for me. Um, and I, what's happened actually just in the recent months, I, I have a, I I've struggled with sleep for a long time, um, insomnia, and I've just tried so many different all of the strategies, right? The, you know, setting up your sleep environment, um, waiting until you're very tired, even using a medication, um, having a wind down routine, whole nine yards, nothing, nothing happened. And then probably a couple of months ago, I was talking to a patient and he uh, mentioned kind of just off the cuff that he was listening to sleep stories for kids with his eight-year-olds, I think at night to help her wind down. And so just kind of on a whim, I looked into it and I loved it. And at first I, I sort of, there's a little bit of self-judgment there listening to a child's story, um, at night, cause they really are made for children. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, but in the end it just, it works. And so I've been doing that pretty much every night. And, and so I, I think I just found a way to do it. That makes sense for me if when mm-hmm. I'm able to set aside that self-judgment um, yeah. and it, it's kind of feels, it feels free actually, just to be able to let go of the should. That's awesome. Yeah. I have talked many times on this podcast about how I've also known the data and taken mindfulness-based stress reduction and always struggled with implementing meditation, continue to, but I think for you, it sounds like it was the switch was like, well, seeing the more immediate benefit, like this seems to be working for me, right? Like, and this is the method that seems to be working. And if I can get my judgment to step aside, like it's continues to be more like reinforcing. And yeah, for me, it, I haven't, I'm not a consistent meditator yet, but I am finding the IFS internal family systems based 
work. Um, I find it for whatever reason, for me, it helps me access like this really positive feeling, whereas normal meditation did not do that. So there's something about, I think one of the things we want to do on this podcast is highlight like how behavior change happens. And it's like, well, when it's actually more quickly reinforcing versus just like, do this thing, do this thing. And you don't really feel better because that I didn't really feel that much better when I meditated. Mm. I usually was kind of, so, um, and sometimes there's things you feel better and you still don't do it. Right. Like I was kind of trying to take like a bath before bed and that did feel better, but I still wasn't doing it. But, but something about that immediate, we can get a shift where we like feel that immediate reinforcement and frankly also remove the judgment right and just like notice what works for us I think that's a big piece too so so yeah thank you yep. for sharing that example is that sure certainly common <laughs> so yeah yeah um and then our courage and connection question so you know made main part of the mission here is to help as many people as possible reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live more courageous and connected lives do you have any examples of where you've seen that um, this could be really with yourself, with people you've worked with, just anywhere where you kind of see that link of more trust, more self-trust and more courage and connection? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think with most of, of the people that I work with, we do talk about just the importance of building stronger connections with body, the body's signals, but also the body as a whole. And, and as part of that, just greater appreciation for one's body. And that does tend to help people both live more fulfilling lives, maybe things that they felt like weren't, um, available to them. Like, you know, even dating, for example, if we don't feel good about our bodies, it's, you know, it's hard to think that someone else will too. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it could be, you know, for dating and intimacy, it could be wearing certain clothes or going certain places, activities. And so working on this, I think really does just make life bigger. Um, so, and, and in terms of, you know, specifics there, I, um, for some, I think for a lot of people actually who have been, you know, on a, either like a diet roller coaster or just maybe have gone through periods of severe restriction with, with food. Um, you can lose touch with the body's sort of signals of hunger and satiety or fullness over time. It just, it happens. We kind of roll over them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in these cases, I discuss sort of what we call intuitive eating with people, just trying to set aside the numbers and the rigid rules, like, you know, calorie counting, at least for a time and just focus on noticing changes, natural changes in in hunger and and fullness in the body. Um, And even more broadly, like times of day when the person, when the body might feel more energized or tired, how the body feels while and during uh, eating certain foods. and in doing so, you know, again, kind of just broadens the the scope of of that person's kind of life in, in terms of just opening up options for how they can navigate food environments, um, you know, less reliance on those rigid rules. Um, it just makes it easier for them to 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 kind of navigate in that way. And then appreciation of the body as a whole. I think this is especially helpful or important when there's a history of sexual trauma. Um, 
you know, there can be kind of a disconnectedness from the body. So, you know, not just uh, your potential weight gain there, right. As we were talking before, like a protective barrier, but, you know, in addition, or or in place of, it could be just, you know, avoiding looking in the mirror. It could be, um, not uh, wearing baggy clothes, for example, not wanting to feel the the weight of clothing on the body, um, not wanting to be touched by someone else. Um, and so, you know, in these cases, I try to encourage kind of gradual exposure to one's body to sort of get acquainted with it. So doing some mirror exercises where I ask them to just observe their body clothed or unclothed, um, in a non-judgmental way, um, maybe working up to directing kind words or appreciation to parts of the body. Um, maybe a little bit of, of, uh, soothing self-touch, like stroking the arm, um, maybe even working up to, you know, a massage, like a professional massage, that kind of thing. Um, but just different ways of noticing, what their body looks like, how it feels in their own skin, and then experiences of being touched, whether it's by the self or, or someone else. Um, and again, it, it just, it does tend to help the person, uh, uh, you know, understand themselves in a different way, um, and, and often engage with others in a more meaningful way. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Where can people learn more about you, the work you're doing, and to connect with you? Um, so the practice I'm working with, DC Health Psychology, I think that's probably the best place, the website, which is um, dchealthpsychology.com. Mm-hmm. Great. We will link that in the show notes. And thank you so much for being here, Greer. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you so much, Sean. Appreciate it. And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please review from my mom's podcast. Make something from my mom's podcast, please. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.